1: Welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today on the podcast, we have two scholars on to discuss their new, brand new, edited volume published by our friends at the University Press of Florida, entitled Reconsidering Southern Labor History, Race, Class, and Power. Those scholars are Drs. Matthew Hild, lecturer in the School of History and Sociology at Georgia Tech, and instructor in the Department of History at the University of West Georgia. And alongside him today, we have the co-editor of the volume, Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt, an independent scholar in Atlanta, Georgia, whose recent book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, was recently featured on the New Books in African American Studies channel. Now, with all that being said, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, Adam. Thanks for having us on.
1: Nice to meet you, Adam. Very nice to meet you virtually as well, Dr. Hild. Um, And so uh, before we get too much uh, uh, further into this process, can you tell us the impetus behind you both deciding to uh, come together and collaborate on this edited volume?
2: Well, Matt and I have been friends and colleagues for quite a while. And we used to work together with an organization called the Southern Industrialization Project. And they had actually wanted to put together several new books, edited volumes, on Southern history. And one of their main books was going to be focused specifically on labor. Now, unfortunately, SIP disbanded, but not before they asked if someone would take up this task.
0: Which I volunteered to do but I didn't want to do the book alone because it's such a huge field that one person trying to cover the whole field back I mean, even one book can't really cover the whole field back but I want it to be as broad and covered as possible. And my experience in Scotch is more in new South and Carrie these is more in old South civil war era. So together we seem like a pretty good fit for the project.
1: And I definitely believe uh, that to be true. And uh, I, I definitely appreciate uh, the two of you uh, uh, working together to Bring this book about, because um, as someone who is from an area, Florida, originally, which is not considered the South, I know it is, but many others don't, um, I learned a whole, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I, I grew up, uh, actually, one of the uh, areas in your book talks about Apopka, Florida, and I was like, oh, snap, I had no clue about, um, you know, an area that is, you know, I guess, 30 miles away from where I grew up. Uh, probably even a little less than that. And so you definitely, as a Florida boy, illuminated a lot about my community that I didn't even know about.
0: Yeah. In fact, I think you're talking about Aaron Conlon's essay in particular, right? Yes. And yeah, certainly. So I think that's one of the more unique contributions of this book that a lot of people probably have no idea that those kind of, for lack of a better term, labor abuses were going on at that late of a day in the United States and still are. Exactly.
2: Yes, and during this volume we didn't want to just get contributions from historians. We wanted to make it much more interdisciplinary. And so we have contributions from sociologists and this piece in particular was much more social science than most histories.
1: And and that is actually a, a an even better way of considering it too because when you think about how to go into this kind of process of, you know, sourcing your your um your contributors for that, I definitely appreciate y- y'all um going about this interdisciplinary um in a, or more so in an interdisciplinary way because um what I personally believe um as someone who um is emerging in- into uh, learning more about the field of uh, southern labor history. Through my work in um, in uh, in uh, in Western North Carolina, it brought to my attention. I think a lot about, um, especially, and y'all bring this up in your um, in the final piece of this uh, in Chapter 19 um, of uh, why labor history history still matters. Is that I I just don't think that a lot of people when they think about the different genres of history that labor history is something that they necessarily think of. But in
2: my estimation,
1: I think that this volume contributes so greatly to really thinking about, right, people have jobs, right? How did the normality of labor that we think of the 40-hour work week, how do we, you know, a lot of this comes from folks, you know, going out and working in the unionizing and all of this are, na- are notions of labor, which I think a lot of people understand in that way, but maybe not in the academic way. So I think that kind of abridgment is something that it greatly, Uh, consumes the volumes within here.
2: Right. Labor history has really kind of been a decline for the last few decades. Um, Even though labor history has been produced by some pretty amazing scholars, it hasn't necessarily been called labor history, right? We call it African-American history, we call it gender history, um, even some histories of capitalism are essentially labor histories. They're looking at how people work, um, what it's like to be a laborer, what it's like to unionize, how people fit into the larger political economy, and so we're just kind of bringing back the title of labor history and bringing all these things together underneath this umbrella of labor history.
1: And and actually you're, you're very true in that. I never even thought about how wow, good grief. It's so it's so wild how life works in that way. I never actually thought about how the the uptick in in works on on just capitalism in general are, you know, it's a it's an expanded it's an expansion time uh for that kind of um work uh but is it necessarily personified, you know, as a or contextualized to be uh, uh, labor focused, right? And I don't think it is. And so I think you bring up, uh, uh Dr. Merritt, a phenomenal point, um, in, in that way. And so, um, going into the book, can you can you tell us, uh, you know, about the the way that you periodize your work, and and also why you made particular decisions, uh, uh, as far as you know how to structure the book.
0: Well, to some extent, of course, we were. of relying upon or at the mercy of our contributors and we put out a call for papers and had to kind of see what came in we did make a conscious decision Mm -hmm. off the bat that we wanted to cover as broad of a chronological scope as possible and as broad of a geographical scope as possible and i think in some ways the book is sort of reflective of what the trends are in labor history in terms of things that are covered things that aren't covered i think we were surprised at how much we received dealing with everything from the revolutionary era to pretty early Old South, even, you know, 1830s, 1840s. One of my own slight disappointments was how little we got in terms of the Great Depression and the New Deal. But I think in some ways that shows how kind of the pendulum swings in terms of what people are looking at. You know, in the 1980s, 1990s, kind of the era of the new Southern labor history, that period of the Great Depression New Deal was all the rage to, to cover. And now it's kind of, you know, the pendulum swung the other way. Now the emphasis seems to be back more on the 19th century and also very recent times.
2: And so we do try to cover all of American history um, since colonial times, and and I think we do a decent job of that, but we've divided it into sections uh, that can be easily adapted to classroom use. Uh, Many of these essays can be used individually in a class, even for undergraduate classes. Uh, We required our writers to be very accessible, uh, very easily read, and, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of prior knowledge to understand these essays as standalone essays.
1: And, and that is absolutely true, because, um, you know, it starts off, uh, listeners, uh, their first section is actually uh, the early Republican, the old South. And, and what you see is that there's so many different areas of focus. Um, but, I, but I really appreciated um, even just you know the the, the first um, the first section the first chapter uh, within that first section origins of the Charleston Mechanic Society white labor activism and Slave competition of Charleston South Carolina in their in their early national era that's a mouthful actually um, and so um, I I definitely appreciated that one as a, as a as a, a, a opening as an opener uh, because. It, it brings about kind of like the the nature of competition, right? You know, capitalism, at least in the market-driven sense of how we, uh, many people think about capitalism today, where, you know, the market, right? Let the market, uh, 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 you know, push towards what the what innovations such are going to be. And so when I think about this particular first chapter, um, white labor activism and slave competition, it was within a, a particular way that I never, that I rarely had thought about was how, uh, specifically in somewhere like an urban area, like Charleston, right? In the, in the urban South at the time, how did slave uh, a labor uh, go to, um, you know, how did that kind of structure kind of how white labor activism was going to be? Uh, so I definitely think that that part, along with the next one uh, being vagrant um, Negroes, um, you know, talking about uh, the policing and labor and mobility and the, in the Upper South, in the early Republic, I think those are really two good companions to kind of kind of talk, because I think both of those are very particular to our present-day moment and how you can kind of look towards this past moment to kind of structure how we understand, you know, present political activism and, and coalition building even today, I think.
2: Absolutely. I think one of the main themes in this book is bringing class back into the age-old analysis of race in labor and not only the divisions within each race class divisions within each race but how different classes of white people interact with different classes of black people or hispanics or native americans and you see that in these early chapters as well as the latest chapters in this book um even the penultimate essay written by a political scientist, Alan Draper, is kind of comparing, you know, putting back a, more of an economic analysis, a materialist analysis into the study of civil rights.
0: Yeah, I think if you go back to those first two chapters, you talked about Thomas Brown's essay on the Charleston Mechanic Society and Christian O'Brestle, Russell Coffin on vagrant Negroes in quotation marks, of course. But I think if you read those essays carefully, they have a lot of present-day relevance, right? I mean, slave labor then is prison labor now, and that's a bit of a simplification, but certainly that's what a lot of labor agitation now is focused upon, the fact that so many corporations are relying so heavily upon prison labor that even what should have been low-paying wage jobs have been sucked out the economy by, by prison labor.
1: Right, and if I'm not mistaken, wasn't this week also um, the, the, the national strike um, uh, uh, of a... Uh... Of uh, prisoners right. this this week, if I'm not mistaken, right. right. Um, and and so that's why you know it's even more. Uh, I guess I don't know if ironic would be the right term, but you, you know, know what comes it's around, it's not around, by coincidence but, that, <laughs> history repeats itself, <laughs> right? You're right. And and so it's a you know this is this interview being recorded. Uh, you know the day or days after um the 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 strike i think is so so important because what it does is it it earmarks time for for us to really think about right you know as you're as a third one even as i look at it right now origins of the prison industrial complex you can 't really get as you you really can 't get to the point as much as that one or at least in in that uh, particular title uh inmate labor in the deep south eighteen seventeen to eighteen sixty five by uh, uh brett j uh so i might be Messing the last name up and polish to him. Um, And so, you know, and that's why I think that sometimes um, and this almost goes and we can even talk about this a little later in kind of how um, in, in how the teaching of something like labor history or southern labor history specifically, how the training that goes involved to become a historian within that field. In large ways, right? Sometimes we talk about the the term uh, objective or objectivity, um, and so some people may listen to us speak about, you know, these particular things of, you know, the the eight of the uh, of the late 18th and going into the 19th century, and you know, how can you speak about, you know, making parallels between today and 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 yesteryear but you know uh you know that's that's something that even as i start my phd those are conversations that i already know that we're going to have and so it might not be done in a labor history kind of way but objectivity in in, in that sense ha- does have a connective thread into how people understand the, the 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 understanding of what labor is and and the production of labor history right which is another which is a form of production
2: That's a fantastic point and we were very pointed with our authors that we wanted them to be able to connect these historical uh moments to what's going on in the present day and we really did push some of them more than others um, to reach and make those connections and make sure that they pointed out why history was relevant to modern day issues Uh, so Basically, we went even back to, um, you know, the early labor history of the 1960s and 70s. And that was really tied to the civil rights movement. Early labor historians were trying to make history relevant. They were trying to show um, what laborers and workers were doing and what they needed and what had worked historically and what hadn't but it was always a very presentist movement. Uh, they wanted to make people's lives better. And I think there's also a movement, especially you know post-recession you know, the last decade or so, a lot of the new generation of historians are trying to make that kind of uh, reestablishment to the present again. They're trying to make a more presentist activist history in vogue once again.
1: And and, and that, that's absolutely true. And also, when when we look at um, you know the, the I think the part where I had so much uh, so so little understanding of um, when we look at some of the areas of um of scholarship here is looking at so so to give uh, some more context, you know, so there was a recent essay that was um, that resurfaced. Uh, I think his name is uh, John Edwin Mason at the University of Virginia. Um, and it was published through, I think it was Yes Magazine. And it talked about Black, uh, uh, or I think it would have been uh, Afro-Latchians, right? Um, as the term goes, uh, the the uh, bringing together of um, uh, African and, and, and Appalachian, right? And so I thought that that, was, that essay, or his particular essay, which is not a part of this book, really made me think a lot about the world that I was living in over the summer in you know, um, in my dealings with folks, when I tell them that I'm I'm trying to you know recover the lives of African Americans who are here in the Smoky Mountain region, but countless times, I uh, you know people were very uh, uh, hesitant. Some embraced it, but a lot of them were hesitant because a lot of folks because they didn't see African Americans in the community today. It's as if their c- contribution to the greater region um, historically was just like their presence. It was, it was lack thereof, it wasn't there. And so I thought that how y'all talk about um, you know, some, some folks that some might call afro or or folks within, um, within the context of even you know, their, their work with uh, Latino uh, workers as well, I thought was a great contribution because a lot of times when it comes to organizing and such like that, you know, coalition building was everything especially in areas where, you, where you're not there in large numbers,
0: right? That's a big problem now, right? That's, that's a big problem too, is that a lot of these unions are, in a way, it's kind of, again, old stories repeating itself in a more complex way because the South used to be for so long essentially a, a biracial, two-race world, and now the South and the country as a whole is you know, much more multiracial, and the coalition building is really one of the things that's come. Hard, harder than ever to do in some ways, which is sad. 2018, but a lot of working class whites have this antagonism towards Latino workers, especially. I mean, certainly African American workers too, but especially Latino workers, Hispanic workers, as people just don't belong in the landscape as far as they're concerned. And that's become one of the real problems to trying to organize all these workers who, you know, a lot of us say are the ones that most need organization.
1: Exactly, and so you know that that's so true because there there's even uh, this this how you know my life revolves damn near on Twitter. It seems like because even how I came to know the two of you through Twitter, how I came to know a lot of the books that are 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 uh, are spoken that I speak to the authors for for the new books in African American studies through Twitter uh, or through source through uh, areas of Twitter um, because I end up seeing another article about uh, uh, Latino or Latinx folks as the largest emerging group in, um, uh, in the Appalachian, uh, uh, in the Appalachian region. Um, or actually, let me, let me make sure I say that correctly, because I had a woman that I work with from Kentucky, uh, chide me because I said, uh, Appalachia wrong. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, you know, right.
2: Right. You yeah, and, oh, and I know when Appalachia. I told her that the
1: actual <laughs> term has nothing to do with the actual place, right. Where you know, um, uh, colonists, uh, Spanish colonists, you know, they they got the name from, you know, Apalachicola, right? The folks who are in on the coastal region of Florida, but that's a whole nother naming. I would say another word, but a naming thing that uh, <laughs> that convention that I get annoyed at. But um, nevertheless, you know, there, there there are many different populations getting more to the point who have a say and whose stories should be talked about more. But I'm so glad that y'all came um, and, and did this book and, and edited this volume because what it does is it contributes to a better understanding of how places have gotten to where they are today, and it gives them a better understanding to contextualize what the hell happened in 2016 and how it, the blindsiding that was supposedly happened didn't. Exa- I don't think it's necessarily blindsiding if you actually knew a bit about this particular history, or at least acknowledge it, I would say.
2: Right, and I mean, that's part of our mission as well, is that for so long, Southern history in particular has been written by white supremacist men. And so there still is so much to go back and overturn, or at least go back and check. Um, Not only the premises, but the methodology, they're main theories. You know, do these hold up when we're looking at things from a more objective manner? Um, when we're doing more research, more uh, deeper archival research, you know, or even you know, broader oral interviews uh, for more modern day topics, it reveals a South that's incredibly diverse, um, that's rapidly changing, that's very modern in some ways. And in a lot of ways, has actually led the nation, not only
1: in policy but in politics. Right, and 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 you know, as the South goes, as you know, the country goes as as it goes um, with the terminology. And I think that um, as well, right? When you think about um, Atlanta, has such a you know, I, when I think about growing up in Florida, um, I just remember like Atlanta. I, I would drive through Atlanta. Uh, to give an example, uh, when I was, you know, in the mid 2000s, I was a teenager and I would listen to things, I would listen to things on the radio. And when I'm back home in central Florida that I don't hear for literally months. Right. So I think about like just, just Atlanta and, and it has a particular jumping off point to talk about, you know, cities, right. The urban South and in large ways, people don't think about urban and the South being anywhere near each other because they think about something, right. I'm living in Delaware, though. Delaware's not seen as, you know. Metropolitan or anything, but where we're close to Philadelphia, D.C., Baltimore, New York, those are urban. Somewhere like Atlanta, Birmingham, even Mobile, or you know these other areas, right? When We think about our understanding. It's why um, even one of your uh, one of your chapters on uh, on the modern South. It was uh, number fourteen: Penns Plains and Politics: How Race and Labor Practices Shaped Postwar Atlanta. Uh, from Joseph uh, D- uh, D- Joseph M. Thompson, rather. Um, it really made me think about, because um, I had read recently uh, Maurice Hobson's book, uh, The Making, it was about the making of a black mecca, about uh, uh, Atlanta being the, the personification of a black mecca, and how when I go to the Hartsfield-Jackson airport, I didn't know much about Atlanta historically, besides King and, and all that stuff. But I did know that Hartsfield-Jackson was, t- at the time, I guess, the most uh the the uh, an airport with the most traffic in the entire world but it's like and i think i think it still is but it's like how did that happen how was it constructed what had to happen to have Hartsfield jackson right the extension with jackson occurred right how why was maynard jackson such a huge figure in in atlanta politics well it had a lot to do with labor history and i thought that um that particular contribution helped me to understand that even more
2: Right. And I would highly recommend anybody to watch the Maynard uh, documentary about Maynard Jackson uh, that Dr. Hobson is on as well. Uh, He's a good Atlanta friend. But um, this essay by Joseph Thompson is, is one of our favorites in the volume. And he does a great job of showing how federal policy and federal money, even when, you know, specifically not earmarked towards racist ends can be used to achieve racist ends right it ends up uh really dividing the labor force and keeping uh black people in poverty in a lot of cases
1: and and that is so true because like when you think about how um right because at, right so, so a lot of times when i think about Right. And, and there are even issues of this with um the, the new stadiums that are being built in Atlanta, um, because I know that um, I think it was what's in it? Oh, sure. The new Brave Stadium is what in Cobb County, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And so. You know, right. right.
0: Yeah, it is. It's not to address, but it's actually. Right. Limits. And, and, and what, it goes into
1: questions of. Right. What has to happen? Right. The, you know, we especially with the ESPNification of how, you know, uh, sports media has as you know, as a as a way of of looking at this as well, kind of looking at how um, what takes place for a stadium to be built, what takes place for a team to move and also, you know, the tax credits. Right. You know, the 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 you know, this is a private industry who's getting tax benefits Right? What those,
0: you know, and so, right. Of course, in the South, there's an old story, right? I mean, that's, you know, like and I both worked with Gene Cobb. He wrote about that for for decades about how Southern state governments, local governments bending over backwards and giving away the farm to lure some kind of industry or nowadays stadium. And the question is, you know, who does that really benefit? Benefits boosters and businessmen. What does it really benefit the working class citizens and community in counties or cities where? There's already poorly funded schools or poorly funded libraries, parks, et cetera, et cetera. And it's disproportionately working class people who, I would say, get less benefit, but they are disproportionately the burden.
2: Yep. Right. I mean, this is still going on today, obviously, as you mentioned with the stadium. But even the film industry is a really big, uh, good example. You know, so many shows, movies, you see that little Georgia peach at the end. Well, that means they moved their production from Hollywood to Georgia, and they did it for one reason, tax breaks.
0: You know that news. little
2: Georgia on there, You're not paying any tax, of tax. Um, you are, yes, you're providing jobs for people in this area, short-term jobs, um, but many of the people are actually imported from other places to just work these short-term jobs. And uh, then you're not leaving a city with a penny of tax and you're disrupting the city while you're filming, it it's it, it's a, a struggle that all southern states have dealt with in trying to bring new industry to an area that has been sold as you know nothing but agricultural. Um, and so in order to bring industry in some ways, you do need to give these kind of tax breaks or tax cuts. But then it does end up hurting poor people
1: disproportionately. Yeah, and I think Matt, you're you're uh, trying to chime in there on that particular point too.
0: Well, no, I think I mean I don't have much to add to that except I would say that let's face it, the film industry in Hollywood is completely unionized. Georgia is a right-to-work state, so I'm sure that helps too, right? Absolutely,
1: absolutely, and 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 you know it's why. And and not to you know harp on Atlanta because you know I hated Atlanta when I was a kid, but I love it now. But. No,
0: I mean I mean. Oh, yeah. so it's just kind of a poster trial for the urban south. I mean, it's these evils— you know, "evil" is the right word—but these ills can be found cities all over America. But in fairness, probably a bit more in the south. And although increasing, with as you saw with the right to work movement in, in Missouri, they they voted it down. But right to work—I mean, I think one of our essays by Adam Carson talks about this dealing with Arkansas. That Arkansas is a state that had a pretty strong labor movement, especially for the south until the 1960s, and then over time. The combination of right to work laws from the 40s and boosterism chipped away and chipped away. And of course, Arkansas is now one of the least in the United States in the entire nation. So and it's, and increasingly though, the right to work problem is becoming kind of more, you know, of course, problems, in my opinion, but I think it's the opinion of most of the study labor history. The right to work problem certainly starts in the South. But you know, one, one of the points that Lee and I and some Tribus try to make in this book is that. You know, the hope for a long time was that the South would catch up to the rest of the nation in economic matters and matters of labor representation, labor rights. And in some ways, what's happened the last 30 or 40 years is just the opposite. The rest of the South, I mean, excuse me, the rest of the nation has become more like the South in terms of lack of unions, declining real wages, declining benefits, et cetera, et cetera.
1: And, and, and yeah, when you talk about that chapter, uh, chapter 15, Beyond Boosterism, uh, Fort Smith, and the creation of conservative uh, economic culture. Um, that one was really, I really enjoyed it. It was just so odd because when I think about, um, you know, how Fort Smith was right. And how, you know, the kind of how the conservative economic culture, it made me think a lot about right. How, so I, so to give you an example, like I drove from, um, I drove from uh, Cherokee, North Carolina to Charlotte from Charlotte. Um, up through the Blue Ridge, um, seventy-seven and eighty-one, through to uh, Maryland. So I cut across Harper's oh, yeah. Ferry, by Winchester, and everything to get up to, uh, to 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 Maryland, where my friend lives outside of Baltimore. And so, to me, after living and and working and reading your book specifically, so driving and kind of thinking about the themes of this book helped me to understand better, right. Kind of like not necessarily understand might be too strong of a word, but kind of it it painted a better picture. Your book did for when I'm driving through, you know, these uh, relatively rural areas for the most part um, and thinking about how and why maybe even in a place where economically they might not have been as well off, how they can still be very, very strict in their conservatism, especially in their in their thoughts about economic policy.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is kind of one of the you know, push and pull dramas that's been being unplayed in the South for a long time. And it's in some ways, it's sort of a, a myth that it's this conservative South where working class people reject unions. But at the same token, there's been a lot of, I don't know, disincentive perhaps. I think there's a legacy in the South of even workers who are willing to unionize, being afraid to unionize. And, you know, the book doesn't go into this as fully as it might have for a simple reason that, again, we had to kind of go with what intruders gave us. But you can look at the textile strike in 1934 in the South that was in Georgia. The governor, Gene Talmadge, declares martial law and has strikers thrown what had been a German in POW camp before McPherson fierce in Atlanta. In South Carolina, seven st- strike leaders are killed behind a path. So And people remember these things. I mean, there was a, a documentary produced about 20 years ago about the textile strike in 1934, and they were interviewing people in the 1980s and 90s who – Three generations later, we're still saying they were afraid to unionize because of what happened to their grandparents. So I don't think it's so much that southerners, the working class, that working class people in the South, are necessarily any more anti-union in other parts of the country. But there's still this sort of dark legacy that hangs over uni- unions in the South that doesn't in the rest of the country.
2: Right, and Bob Hutton's T.R.C. Hutton's essay, "The Gunmen of Capitalism," I think does a fantastic uh, job of explaining this, you know, showing how even private companies are hiring, you know, thugs, basically, to go after any laborers who are trying to achieve better working conditions. Uh, And this was widespread, you know, throughout the South and throughout the nation. Um, But it was particularly violent in the South, uh, not only due to the legacy of slavery, but due to white supremacy, all right? there was always uh, violence. extremely violent, brutal repression of laborers, particularly Black laborers, whenever they tried to organize or unionize or, or strike for better working conditions. And whenever there was a possibility of a biracial coalition, you better bet the big-wig whites are coming in trying to engender and whip up as much racist fury uh, amongst underclasses, underclass whites,
1: as they could. Yeah. And so when I think about kind of like uh, a lot of times people talk about, uh, you know, either sundown towns or the overall vigilante violence that um, that really was the the life between reconstruction and going into the 1950s and 60s. Um, that's why.
0: I mean, even now, I mean, there's still sundown towns in Arkansas to this really? day.
2: Oh, wow.
1: In fact,
0: one of the famous ones in Bonanza, Arkansas, where white coal miners drove out black coal miners. Nearly over a century ago, and the last census I saw in 2010, this, this town, in Arkansas, there was still not a single black resident. Wow. In 2010, think, think about wow. that. Wow.
1: It, it, it's reminiscent of um, there was a book by was it uh, Timothy was it Timothy Phillips or something like that. It was uh, Blood at the Root. I think that was the the story of uh, was that force is that Forsyth County um, where there was a lynching.
0: Oh, Georgia, yeah, sure. Forsyth County, right, just North right. Atlanta, and,
1: right. And that's famously, if I'm not mistaken, that's a famous county that Oprah went to um, I guess it was in the the nineteen eighties or the nineteen nineties on her show, right? Yes. Yeah. that's when yeah.
2: I name one of the racist, most racist counties yeah. in America. Until
0: the mid nineteen eighties though. I think is it and correct me if I'm wrong, Carrie Lee, but wasn't that county all white until the mid-1980s? I remember yes, a, I think a, a so. big demonstration. In fact, some, some historians from the University of Georgia, I remember William McFilliam on them, actually were marching in Forsyth County in 1986 and were being belted with bottles and rocks by, by Klansmen. And you know, there has been some integration in the county, but it's been a very recent and slow development for sure.
1: It, it, right. And so, you know, these are things, right, when we talk about uh, uh, labor history, I think, you know, you had mentioned it before, even labor history interspersed with memory, I think, as well is something that um, I think overlaid the entirety of your of your work here and how though people may not be able to articulate uh, theory or they may not be able to be, you know, they, they might not know all the newest scholarship in this particular field. But one thing I think a lot of people have uh, uh, here in the South is, is a memory of a lot of these situations that and the histories that are, are that are here in this book, in um, the edited volume, because right, it's why, um, and, and I and I replay the story a lot. I remember I went to school at Florida A University in Tallahassee, and we would always go up to Atlanta for for uh, for football games, um, and so we would drive. We wouldn't we wouldn't take I ten. We would always go through Thomasville, Georgia, or Thomasville, uh, Valdosta, and such. And I think we were outside of Valdosta one, uh, one time, and I'll never forget. It was my freshman year in 2010 when there was, and all of us are from the suburbs of Orlando, so none of us were anywhere near, uh, or at least we thought, uh, uh, cotton uh, fields or cotton plantations, but I'll never forget, we were, all four of us are in that car, and we look to our left, and there's a white, you know, a uh, uh, white-filled field, right? So we know that's cotton. Why do we all freeze, right? Why do we, like... You know, why do we feel pressure, right, in, in our bodies? It's that it's that memory where we don't know, right? We've never picked cotton. Maybe some of our family members did, but we don't have a personal relationship, uh, a, a, a primary relationship to it. But it's that memory, right? It's the memory and the, our understanding of what that means, right? We don't have the knowledge or we don't have the uh, depth of understanding to be able to rope off books or anything like that, but we do have a memory, right, a more... A, embedded cultural memory right <laughs>
0: historical right. memory right
2: right it's a visceral reaction something that feels you know very uh primordial i think in some ways
1: yeah and, and i even remember um actually carrie i was listening to your interview here on uh and I, actually, I think it was either the new books one or the one that you had on um uh, uh the, the the jackson the Andrew Jackson one of the Andrew Jackson podcast. Um, and I was actually walking through the woods, right? I was actually on a, on a trail um, in the Smoky Mountains rather. So, so, you know, this is how, you know, people listen to this stuff or they might just be a huge nerd like myself. Might be both true. And so uh, what happens is that I thought for a second, as you were talking uh, with the interviewer, I had to, I, I had to pause you guys real quick to kind of take in the moment in the sense of, why is it that African-Americans do not, for the large part, feel like the, the you know, the conservation of the environment, right, or nature is somewhere where we want to be? Why do we not want to be in the woods? Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact of, right, and this goes to like the transcendental movement, right, where a lot of them thought about um, uh, the nature as like, a, as like a space of recreation, vocation, right? But not necessarily something that is your entire world, right? If you're an African American in the antebellum South, the woods, right? The outdoors, that is not somewhere where you have a lot of fond memories. That's where a lot of the destruction of your life comes from, right? And so so, so when I think about... Yeah, Yeah,
2: that's that's a fantastic point. And one that I wish um, you would write an amazing essay about, because I think it is absolutely true. I mean, you think about even a, an enslaved person trying to escape, right? They, that's that's your luckiest. You're trying to escape. But to go out into the wilderness means almost sure death, you know, whether it's from animals and beasts or from the next white man that sees you.
1: And as I write this down to make sure I do not forget it, um, <laughs> you know, I, I that that's actually a phenomenal point, because when I think about um, how, you know, and 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 as well, you know, there's a there, there's a potential for a spinoff for a more, um, you know, philosophical based approach when when it comes to you know debates about, you know, these areas that new, new books now we're thinking about. I'd love to have you all on on to speak more about that specifically. Um we'll talk about it on offline a little later. But I think that um in the in the time that we have left, I think it would be fruitful for us to talk about, you know, as well, like though the that last section, like section five, right? Concluding thoughts. Because I think that um, you know, the the going forward part, um, and kind of how because you know, obviously the 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 title of your book is reconsidering southern labor history, right? And how right going forward, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's the discussions that not only we're having, but that hopefully historians um, and, and folks across the, the, the spectrum um, interdisciplinary wise right, are thinking about, hopefully, you know, maybe you haven't thought about this as much, but kind of what do you think the legacy that you want this book to have? And kind of like what it builds into for the future of not only your careers, but also with the careers of, of the contributors, but also the greater field of Southern labor history.
2: Sure. Um, and we started getting at some of these themes, um, but of course, you know, this was turned into the press uh, probably, what, close yeah. to two years ago. Yeah. So lot's happened in that time. Right. Um, and I would make some of the arguments even more forcefully now. I think that if anything can come, anything good can come out of the current situation, is that we will see the absolute horrors of the right and swing a little bit farther to the left and hopefully get some really progressive reforms passed within the next few years. Um, that, that That's me being very hopeful, of course. But so the new labor history, as I pointed out in the 1960s, was really came about in tandem with the civil rights movement. And like I said, they really wanted to be activists. They really wanted to change policy. And so in some ways, I'm hoping a revival of labor history, you know, a kind of third labor history, can also help usher in a third reconstruction of sorts, Um, something that not only gets at matters of race and reparations and the absolute... um, Inequality of wealth that resulted not only from slavery but from federal policy after slavery, but that also addresses, uh, you know, what are we going to do from a labor perspective going forth? As Bethany Morton points out very clearly in her essay, we're actually looking at a society where people need to work less, right? And so that needs to restructure our entire society. We need to put more people into service jobs. You know, people are living longer. People have more special needs. We need people at all levels of the service economy who are paid living wages, um, who are given complete benefits, health care, you know, retirement. We need to take care of the people in society that are taking care of other people, uh, who are educating our children, who are taking care of our aging parents. Um, and I think that that can probably best be achieved by pairing not only a federal jobs guarantee um, with a universal basic income, but then also having all of the different social safety nets that pretty much every other industrial country in the world already enjoys.
1: And and that
0: me. Oh, oh go ahead
1: okay. no 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 I I'll, I'll comment afterwards.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I think for me, to sum up briefly, what I think I'd like to see the impact of the book be is the title, summed up by the title we chose for that conclusion, Why Labor History Still Matters, that a lot of people, I think, think of labor history as being something that's interesting in the sense of being studying the past, but not really a present-day relevance. And I think if you read this book closely, there are a lot of both explanations of how things have gotten to where they are today for working class, not only working class Southerners, but working class Americans in general. But I think this book also poses a lot of cases in the past where workers organizing and where workers having some kind of political voice that got heard actually made a real impact in the lives of workers, you know, white, black, Latino, male, female. I mean, labor history shouldn't just be something that's kind of interesting to read and study. There's a lot of lessons we've learned, I think, from this book that people would do, you know, as Carrie was saying, lessons that people would do well to consider forward.
1: And, and I definitely think that you know you two have done a phenomenal job um, at you know the the work that I see all do uh, through Twitter uh, like usual um, and seeing you know the 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 expansion you know hopefully of the field and you know you'll you'll definitely be seeing me at the Southern Historical uh, Association I think that that's the full name uh, conference down in Birmingham and I definitely look forward to working more. Um, with, uh, with the Southern Labor uh, History Association um, as well in future. Because I think that the work that, um, that y'all have put me onto and, and hopefully the listeners too as they go purchase the book Reconsidering Southern Labor History, Race, Class, and Power, which is edited by our friends, Dr. Matthew Hill and Carrie Lee Merritt through my friends at the University Press of Florida. You know, I definitely think that everyone is going to enjoy um, this book as much as I've enjoyed this interview as well.
2: well let, me, let me have a, a caveat real quick, Adam. So the book that's out now is a hardcover, and that's really supposed to be for libraries. We know it's very expensive. Um, we don't expect anybody to pay that much. But please ask your library to order it. And as soon as we get enough library orders then we'll get a paper back out that
1: individuals can afford. And that is something that I, I'm going to make sure to put in the show notes, too. To go, and then I'll put that in, in the Media Blitz once once this is published to make sure that, you know, we got a lot of librarians on Twitter. There's a library Twitter out there that they got power. Yeah. No doubt.
2: <laughs> we love librarians.
1: Yes, yes. And so, um, you know, in the interest of time, because I know that we're hitting our our limit here, so we want to make sure that uh, we keep our that we keep our uh, uh, authors happy. You know, they got lives too. You know, there, there's more to life than just reading and writing, sort of, right? Sort of, you know, in quotes, right? Um, and so, you know, I, once yeah. again, I really appreciate uh, 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 the two of you for coming on the program today. You know, it's been it's been a long time coming. You know, summertime is a lot going on for the three of us, as so I'm glad that we were able to break red today. And uh, this won't be, you know, the the last time. This will just be uh, the first time. And so once again, I appreciate the two of you for coming on the program. And those two, if you have not been listening for the last 48 minutes exactly, we have on here Drs. Matthew Hild and Carrie Lee Merritt, who uh, edited this beautiful book with this phenomenal cover uh, entitled Reconsidering Southern Labor History, Race, Class, and Power which was published by our friends at the University Press of Florida. And going forward, we will definitely have both of these folks on the program uh, at another time. But until next time, folks, I am your host, Adam McNeil, host of New Books in African American Studies, over and out.